0: It's the Underpowered Hour. This week on the show, Land Rover's Future Vision presentation, Classic Works, Land Rover Trophy Defender, Project Updates, Hummingbirds in the Workshop, Skin Quilts and more, all starting right now. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at the BarrisCollection.com or check us out on Instagram at The Barris Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thanks to everyone joining us today. I'm the bias ply
1: to Stephen's radio, the unsynchronized crash box of podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online, Facebook and Instagram at Pangolin4x4. All right, Stephen, let's get started.
0: If you haven't yet had enough Land Rover in your uh, week... Um, and if you uh, drive a, a vintage Land Rover like Ike and I both do, you probably have well over enough Land Rover in your life this week. But why not have some more? So, Ike, what uh, what's up this week? What's interesting in the world of the Green Oval?
1: Well, I think a number of things uh, have come to light. Uh, we had, uh, I guess, what is best described as a shareholder meeting coming from Land Rover, talking about the future of the company, what they're going to be doing, the types of vehicles they're going to be selling Uh, And this was a joint, you know, Jaguar, Land Rover sort of press release, and uh, they talk a lot about electric vehicles and a lot about the types of vehicles that they're going to be offering. And uh, I think for those of us who love and uh, live and breathe the commercial and uh, industrial vehicles, they seem to be uh, shying away from that a little bit more, you know, the Totally focused on the luxury, uh, luxury vehicles, luxury SUVs, luxury cars, luxury sports sedans that seemed to be the order of the day.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it, you know, it becomes at some point a a choice, I think, for a company that's the size of Jaguar Land Rover, very small. Um, Also, I wonder if it had something to do with the fact that now they're owned by uh, Tata Motors, who of course has industrial vehicle divisions. They make, uh, you know, know, not to say the very least, the Tuk-Tuk you know, three-wheeled mobility thing. I don't exactly know what you want to call it, car, scooter. Uh, Good time. Good time. I want to see a Land Rover Tuk-Tuk. I think that would be. Well, the Mohindra is a little bit like a kind of Isuzu trooper if an Isuzu trooper was dressed for Halloween as a defender, I think is kind of how I would describe the Mohindra. (laughs) So
1: the Mahindra here in the United States is a side-by-side, essentially. That's how it's sold, right? Yes, it's a
0: side-by-side with essentially like a CJ body on it. Um, But the funny thing is the the rest of the world gets a Mahindra that is a lot more modern side Suzuki sidekick looking, which is really interesting. And I guess now Jeep has filed some type of, of action against Tata for the Mahindra that they're Planning to. I'm not sure if you can actually even buy it here yet, but that they're planning to uh, sell here. Maybe you can. Um, I'd read something about that because it was a bit too Jeepy.
1: You know, what? that's ironic because apparently they had been making Jeeps under license from Jeep since the 40s. Oh, interesting. And, and so they didn't seem to have a problem with Mahindra making uh, the Jeeps and using a lot of design elements from the Jeeps until they started selling them in the United States. And then they're like, oh, you know that thing that we told you you could do? Actually, no, you can't do that. And so uh, they've changed the grill, I think, for the most recent releases. But yeah, that's definitely some litigation going
0: on back and forth between Jeep and Mahindra. Not that any of that is
1: Land Rover related.
0: No, I was going to say great first uh, 10 minutes uh, mentioning basically nothing about Land Rovers so far. Off to a great start it It does bring up a, a couple things that
1: have happened. There have been several um, i guess trade and copyright infringements from Chinese companies making I think one of them's called a, the land wind yes uh, which definitely sounds like a translation error but uh uh or possibly a gastrointestinal problem but apparently you can buy one of these cars and it 's a copy of a land Rover. And so Land Rover is uh, understandably upset that uh, that their trademarks and uh, trade dress is being infringed upon.
0: Yeah, well, and there's of course, as we talked about last week, the Grenadier. In that Land Rover tried to copyright the shape of the Defender and was on unsuccessful in in doing that um and so that gave the the grenadiers sort of some license to look you know like we said last week well, a lot like uh, a defender but um coming back to uh the you know, shareholder uh, presentation. Um, interesting. You know, talked a lot about the future of the brand, about refocusing on uh, super luxury. Uh, they did say they were keeping all of their manufacturing facilities. Uh, they didn't plan on on closing any of the facilities and that they would sort of, it sounded like refocus Castle Bromchurch into something uh, a little different than it's doing now. Uh, Bromchurch is kind of an interesting facility anyways. It's where they make the E-Type. They're large or I'm sorry, the F-type. They're largely uh, where they did make E-type. Now they make F-type. They're largely. It used to be a Spitfire factory, I believe, during the war. It was, a, it was a shadow factory for the Spitfire, I believe. And uh, they have a great, uh, you know, obviously a, a great operation there. Um, they're moving everything to Gaydon. Uh, sounds like the executive team's moving to Gaydon. Uh, there's that brand-new JLR facility there. It's it's gorgeous, uh, giant, uh, you know, sort of brushed aluminum building uh, that I'm sure in the summer is impossible to touch. You can't get near it. I'm sure cars are melting in the uh, parking lot uh, from the glare. Um, but uh, interesting that they've sort of ref. Focused around, okay, well, we're going to keep everything as it is. We're just going to tighten up our supply chain. We're going to, you know, do all the sort of things that you would, uh, I, I guess, you would do, trying to sort of bring a, a company into a, a more profitable uh, space. Um, and they talked a lot about both. Uh, the classic works um, and uh, special vehicles, which I think was great, you know, for the for the Oxfordshire uh, location there where special vehicles and and classics are cohabitated. Um, it's great. It's great that they're not going to uh, do away with that. And that may be uh, the path to the more utility Land Rover from Land Rover. Um, Things, uh, you know, special vehicles coming out of that program, uh, you know, sounds like that's where you're going to find the more, I don't know about collector, but the more uh, utility-oriented Land Rover enthusiast is probably now looking at something from a combination of the classic works and uh, or special vehicles, uh, as I don't think there will be another utility Focus Land Rover uh, from the main brand.
1: Well, and that uh, brings up a good point as they try to um, expand their classic works and uh, produce more vehicles that are in keeping with their classic vehicles. Uh, how is that going to affect enthusiasts? How is that going to affect smaller businesses that have been doing that for a long time? It'll be interesting to see. I, uh, there has been some friction between um, Jaguar Land Rover and some of the Jaguar replica manufacturers, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. who are making like C and D types and uh, racing those and that sort of thing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that. Uh, That sort of mentality transfers to the Land Rover side of things as they continue to produce, uh, I guess, new old vehicles. And that brings us up to another point, which is Land Rover has said they're releasing a commemorative trophy edition Defender, which comes in the 110 and 90 inch wheelbases. I believe, and uh, obviously we uh, we get the impression this harkens back to the Camel Trophy vehicles, although obviously
0: the Camel part of it is absent from this particular endeavor. Uh, what do you know about that, Steve? Well, yeah, it sounds uh, from the little bit of press that's out right now, they're going to do a limited run, 25 uh, cars. This is from the allotment that they... Uh, set aside at some point for the, uh, you know, Rover uh, Works, uh, classic Works uh, V8 Defenders before this. They had, I think it was 25 of those as well, the the sort of cherry red and, um, uh, or, or uh, you know, umber um, red, whatever, and black uh, in the manual, uh, or, I'm sorry, in the automatic transmission, ZF transmission, uh, coupled to one of the Jaguar, Uh, V8s. And so it certainly seems like an insane combination in a Defender, but the suspension is reworked and uh, uh, such that you won't just immediately flip over uh, as soon as you uh, hit the gas. But uh, yeah, these new new cars are apparently 25 of them, uh, somewhere in the range of 125,000 pounds to start, 150,000 pounds to start, somewhere in that area. So give or take about 200, 250,000 US dollars. So an awful lot of, uh, of, of cash for a vintage uh, Defender, although, again, updated with the uh, V8 motor and the automatic transmission, and the livery to, uh, you know, sort of, again, uh, give you the impression of a Camel Trophy uh, vehicle. It has the lights and the winch and the uh, roof rack and lights and all that sort of business. And... Uh, interestingly, and I think actually something that is is different for this type of thing than other manufacturers are doing, uh, a three-day um, Easter Castle trip for a mini trophy event, uh, which I think is kind of cool.
1: Yeah, I thought that was fascinating that, uh, you know, if you buy one of these vehicles, you get to participate in this trophy event. And, uh, I'm sure they will have, uh, events and, uh, special courses and special obstacles that harken back to the Camel Trophy days, um, and I'm assuming
0: they're using. You would use the vehicle that you just purchased to do this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that you necessarily want to use a $250,000 brand new Defender to uh, to slog it around uh, Eastner Castle. I'll tell you, for all the times that I've been to uh, Eastner, I have never uh, taken a Defender out there and not broken off one of the plastic caps that they put on the uh, on the ends of the new bumpers. Um, every time, it's 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 not something I'm trying to do. Uh, but it is something that has. It's a skill. It's a uh, skill. yeah, and it's been more many more times than once. Sometimes uh, a couple of times in the same week, and so uh, you know, it's my exactly my claim to fame. Uh, I'll autograph it and leave it for Land Rover. They throw it out as soon as I leave. Um, but uh, but yeah, I can say it. You know, there are some tough spots, especially it looks from some of the coverage like they'll go down to uh, Camel Bridge, which if it's been wet there at all is is a pretty harrowing uh journey to get down there and um you know on a good day you can get in and out no big deal if it's a little if it's a little wet there's a ton of winching uh to get in and uh in out of that spot uh so yeah i mean here's the thing if you're going to buy essentially a camel trophy truck which if you wanted to buy a Camel Trophy Defender, an event used Camel Trophy Defender, you wouldn't be paying significantly less money. You'd be you'd be paying less than two hundred fifty thousand U.S. dollars. But there are certainly Camel Trophy Defenders uh, that are out there that can be had in the hundreds uh, of thousands of dollars, maybe a hundred plus, maybe not quite two hundred, but a hundred plus. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it is uh, or or isn't a. Uh, a, a fair price. I think it's worth what anybody would pay for it. And to have the ability uh, or the opportunity uh, to go and spend three days at Nar Castle under a, uh, a sort of event-style uh, atmosphere, um, I can say it's a privilege to go there. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, there's the Land Rover driving experience sort of thing that you could do, and it's really fun. But I can say when you, when you are there for something other than uh, that, It is really an amazing place, and uh, you know the the team, Will and the gang that that run Eastnor Castle, uh, the experience uh, there, the Land Rover Center there, are truly amazing folks. And uh, you know it is it is a pretty special place. So the idea, if you are so equipped financially to uh, buy your way into something like that, is is really interesting. And you know it's kind of a neat experience and vehicle package, right? I think if you think of it just as a very expensive restored Defender. You could get one from Twisted Motors or something like that and get sort of a similar kind of package. An older Defender that's been completely remanufactured with a modern technology, a modern engine, um, much more livable than, uh, than, you know, the original cars. Um, but you're doing just that. You're driving away with a car, and they're great. You know, I've seen the, the a couple of the Twisted cars that have come out of, uh, you know, out of Los Angeles here since they've set up. Uh, they're very cool, very high-end, you know, super, super nice. Um, and they're extremely expensive, and so you know to think, well, you you get that from Land Rover, uh, and a a trip around Easter Castle for a few days, yeah, I think to the right buyer, that's super cool, and more so than just hey, come and buy this expensive car, and then take it and put it in your garage, and and uh, you know t- tell your friends about it, um, but you know come and use it for what it was designed to do um and uh, you know yeah it's 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 sort of interesting uh, you know i i think they'll sell all 25 i don't think there will uh, there will be any trouble doing that
1: no it, it is interesting i am curious it definitely begs the question how many more special editions are we going to see we've seen the the works uh, v8 we've seen the uh, trophy edition uh are they going to be doing this for 20 years 50 years yeah. like how, how many defenders have they allocated to this? And then how are those cars registered? Are they registered as a new build, or are they registered as an old vehicle? Um, is Land Rover still in the Defender business, or is this a, you know sort of a sideline or a promotion?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and obviously the question is, you have to beg the question, well, could you get one here in the United States? I think, sure, you could buy it, and sure, you could import it. You would never be able to road register it, uh, I don't think, uh, unless it went through all of the appropriate uh, regulatory work, which is obviously extremely expensive. And in the case of the Defender, uh, I imagine the the work that you'd have to do to it would be so extensive that it would would probably be unfavorable to operate uh, after that. But um, that being said, there's plenty of countries in the world that will let you drive that car on the road still. They don't care. Um, And I think it's probably aimed more at those countries uh, than it is at a U.S. consumer. I don't think that Land Rover is necessarily hoping to capture, you know, 15 of these being sold into the United States. It it would be interesting if they did decide to take, uh, and I'm not even sure if it's possible, but a certain run that were U.S. legal uh, serial numbers and do a re- You know, a reissue of the NAS uh, cars, perhaps. Do a limited run of 10 brand new North American spec. Uh, defenders. I think there would definitely be a market. I think you would sell those cars here. I don't know that you could do a lot more than ten or fifteen or twenty at a time. Uh, I just don't know that there's a huge market for the hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollar, you know, sort of remanufactured uh, Defender. But there's probably a market for up to that much. I, I, I think you'd find people that would buy them. And maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe that's how they continue on. Eventually, you have to imagine they're going to run out of you know allotments of Land Rover serial numbers that they didn't use. And then I guess it goes to what they're doing with the Series 1, which are simply restored vehicles.
1: Yeah, you know, and uh, it's interesting you say that, you, you know, the restored Series trucks that uh, Land Rover's producing, I think they use a, an entirely new body with exception of perhaps the bulkhead. So, uh, you know, at what point is it a restored car? At what point is it a reproduction car? Um, you know, I don't know what, what content percentage-wise constitutes a new vehicle versus a restored vehicle, but certainly there's a fine line there, and, um, you know, is the Defender Trophy edition, is it a new vehicle, or is it a, you know, classic vehicle that they have are quote-unquote restored? I'm assuming not. I'm assuming that every part on the car is new and it's never been part of another vehicle
0: yeah from what i understand and i certainly don't know if the if the trophy uh cars are this way but they had held a certain number uh of of defenders off of the line in that last year of production specifically and by held i mean the you know, VIN numbers were created and maybe a knockdown kit or something was put into storage. They weren't necessarily built out cars that they had sitting in a lot somewhere, but that there was a certain amount that they had allocated to be able to do things like this going forward, which is, which is actually really interesting. They had the foresight to think, hey, I wonder if people are going to want uh, a Defender in 2022 that is really a 2016 uh, Defender. I, I don't know. Well, uh
1: one thing that I did uh, notice when the Defender went out of production was that they sold the last production vehicle for 800,000 I can't remember if it was pounds or dollars, but uh as obviously a seminal vehicle, you know the end of the uh, classic Defender. Um and at that time maybe they thought, well, we could keep making the last Defender over and over again. and uh, we'll just we'll just keep stretching this out. Um and who can blame them, you know? Yeah. But uh that guy that bought the last defender, he's probably like, Oh
0: man. Oh man, this isn't the last <laughs> defender at all. They keep making these things. Now Ike I gotta say, uh, do you know that guy? Have you been in contact? Is you would have then have the matching set of the last series one and the last defender. I think that's a nice bookend.
1: I haven't, but maybe I should reach out to him. For those of you that don't know, I have uh the last one Oh seven station wagon UK market truck. So they keep made, they made the one Oh seven station wagon into series two production. So it was kind of the last model until the one Oh nine wagon came out. And so the one that I have is the very last serial number and it was originally sold to the Duke of Marlborough. So it is affectionately called the Duke and it's been in a couple of magazines and whatnot, but a great car. I drive it regularly and, uh, you know, kind of an interesting footnote in Land Rover history.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, Ike is known as the, uh, as the Duke of Oregon. So I think it's a, it's a fitting, I, fitting placement. I got to tell you, it's actually Archduke. Oh. Mm. There's some, there's a settlement dispute over
1: there. Yeah. I'm working on that. I'm yeah. working on that. We'll yeah. get it resolved, but uh,
0: yeah. it's a sore subject. Yeah. Top, top uh, people are on it as we speak. It is uh, so, making its way.
1: The so let let's go back to let's revisit the uh Land Rover um we'll call it a shareholders meeting we'll yeah, call I it think a so, yeah uh, yeah we'll we'll talk about that a little bit Land Rover has been discussing its future um let's let's touch on electric Land Rovers you know obviously uh there's a big push for electric vehicles throughout the industry Um, and Land Rover is no different. They want to push the electric vehicles, and they said that their entire line of cars, both Jaguar and Land Rover, will be electrified. Uh, I can't remember whether it's 2026 or 2030.
0: I think it's 2035 Uh, is going to be front-to-back zero tailpipe emissions, which I think is an important distinction. Battery-first, all Jags, battery-first 2025. Which is crazy. That's five years uh, from now for those keeping count. Uh, that is ambitious. There's not, to be fair, a staggering number of Jaguar models. About actually about the same as as Land Rover models. I think give or take three uh, or four major uh, designations. One of those designations already pure electric. Um, again, I loved the classic works. Uh, E-Type, the electric E-Type that Prince Harry uh, famously drove on his uh, honeymoon. Um, I thought that, you know, producing a car like that in the f type which which I have an F type, a uh, Sport 400 F type. Um, and it's a fantastic car. I love it. It's a great great car, super drivable car, still weird and, you know, sort of uh, Jaguary and all of its little quirks and strangely shaped windows and things and it kind of evokes well if you were to make an E type today, it probably would look an awful lot like a hard type, a hard top F type. Um, and so the idea of that being Electric is actually kind of exciting. I think you look at what Tesla is doing with the Roadster, um, and and a lot of companies now doing these very high performance. And obviously, the battery power allows you to have a very high performance sports car. The question is, how do you apply that to an adventure vehicle, an overlanding vehicle?
1: I think that's exactly the point that I was uh, kind of roundabout getting to. You know, how does that? apply to Land Rover you know certainly in the um, you know we're gonna take a a nice vehicle to a nice restaurant out on the town you know run errands go to my executive job certainly I can see a Land Rover application an electric Land Rover application uh, in that sense and for those uses But, uh, you know, Land Rover has built itself as an adventure travel, you know, vehicle that is their brand. Uh, How does the electric vehicle do that within the scope or within the time period that they're talking about?
0: Yeah. And I think if you want an interesting example of that, I don't know if you've seen the the Long Way Round series with Ewan McGregor, where they take the motorcycle trips around and up and down. And the latest iteration is actually an Apple uh, series. It's on Apple TV Plus. And they use two Rivian pickups as their support vehicles. And they're using uh, the Harley-Davidson electric motorcycle as their motorcycle. Now, Harley-Davidson specially prepared a sort of you know, somewhere in the Enduro neighborhood uh, kind of looking, at least, and, and and performing seems to be, performs fairly well. Um, and they are, com- you know, are sort of accompanied by two Rivian pickup trucks. And I'll tell you that even though Rivian went out of their way in an insane uh, sort of way to put in charging stations, basically from—they went from the deepest part of South America all the way up to Los Angeles. And so all through South America, Rivian put in these charging stations. And even then, uh, the trucks were often out of batteries, were at the side of the road getting charged by essentially a—a a Flatbed Zuzu, uh, you know, uh, work truck with a generator on the back that they would sit and generate them. Rivian also has a really cool feature, which I think is is key if you're going to try to do this in an overlanding vehicle, where when you, you can tow it. And it will regenerate. Basically, put it in regen mode and then tow it, and it can completely refill its battery um, being towed. So again, well, what does that mean? Well, if you have two of them and they're both out of batteries, it doesn't help you. Um, but it's just sort of those sort of things. I think are key. Um, you know, maybe by twenty thirty five, you can stick some solar panels out on the side of a you know of the trail for a couple of hours and and get a serviceable amount of uh, of battery that way. I also think that they, you know, they did say zero tailpipe emissions, which means not necessarily all battery, battery first, and certainly for Jag, probably battery always because it just makes sense. You're not going, you know, hundreds of miles away from a road uh, in your uh, F-type. You know, you're you're racing back and forth to San Francisco, and there's 900 places to charge between here and there, so it's no problem. But it is interesting to think about: is it hydrogen? Do you have jerry cans of hydrogen on the roof of your Defender? And is that how your you know, you have a hydrogen hybrid drivetrain and you're zero emissions for sure, but you have a fuel that is transportable. Uh, compressed hydrogen is, I don't think, particularly safe. Um, but maybe it is. I don't know. I, you know, the Hindenburg seemed to be just fine until it wasn't. Um, so i don 't know maybe there's a world where you have uh, you know a uh, you know a hydrogen uh, supply that you have access to in a container that you can take with you i don 't know i don 't even know if that 's possible i don 't know if the technology exists to move hydrogen around on the roof of your car. They did discuss hydrogen
1: vehicles, you know, and and investments in hydrogen infrastructure for new vehicle production. So that's actually a good point that that potentially not all of these vehicles will be 100% electric um, at that time. Uh, you know, hydrogen is uh, a very promising technology, but that you know, much like electric technology, uh, infrastructure is key to making that practical for the sort of applications that. Land Rover has historically been used for but maybe that is changing you know those applications yeah. that people associate with Land Rover maybe that is uh, is going to be different in the future but it's interesting to see Land Rover um producing a vehicle like the the trophy edition on the one hand to sort of satisfy those traditionalists and those uh who are uh, maybe a little bit uh romantic in their vision of what Land Rover is, uh, from a historic perspective. Um, but then also, you know, generally they're catering towards, uh, you know, the, uh, technology oriented, uh, clean vehicle oriented, uh, you know, consumer with, uh, deep pockets, you know, to yeah. have a, a luxury vehicle along those lines.
0: Well, and I definitely think for Range Rover, uh, to a, a probably a slightly lesser extent, but also Discovery, it makes total sense. Certainly, a Range Rover, right? I mean, certainly a Range Rover. The number of Range Rovers that actually spend a significant amount of time off road is minimal. They tow boats, they tow horse trailers, they you know drive out onto the field to drop off a you know a, a soccer team sort of a thing. But they're not being used for overland expeditions. It just doesn't make any sense. They, they people don't use them for that. The Discovery is much more of a, a you know an active vehicle. You're taking kayaks to the uh, you know to the reservoir down to the ocean. You're camping. You're doing things. Things like that, where you're not really that far away from infrastructure, and certainly if you have a battery that lasts you up, I don't know, five, maybe 600 miles, maybe more by the time you have an all electric discovery, those vehicles are, are, are very large, so their capacity for uh, batteries is, is also very large. So maybe by then, if you have a thousand mile range, let's say, on your discovery. Maybe you don't have such an issue, but again, I think for that overland defender, adventure, explorer crowd, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. You're going to be way farther away from infrastructure than any battery could possibly supply. So you're going to need a fuel that can either be dropped in remote locations, uh, infrastructure that's available in remote locations. I mean, think about parts of Africa. It's difficult to get diesel fuel. Forget about trying to plug in an electric vehicle or or try to you know uh, fill backfill hydrogen or something like that. So yeah, definitely something to think about in the future is how that will get pulled off in an, in an adventure brand. And and I agree. I think that the classic uh, works and their ability to produce these enthusiast vehicles in you know low numbers. And maybe who knows? They'll take a crack at doing something that is a little more achievable for the average consumer uh, at some point in the future. Who knows?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, You know, the other thing, the corollary to that is, it's very easy to, you know, predict your range on a uh, even consistent road surface. Uh, But you know, when you're taking these vehicles off road, and you drive through sand or drive through mud or drive in cold weather, these sorts of things are going to reduce that range quite a bit in an electric vehicle. And uh, that, that makes planning very difficult if you can't uh, determine how many miles you can go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. How interesting to see and keep track of, uh, going forward. So what's, uh, what's happening, uh, up at the shop, uh, these days, uh, Ike, anything, uh, exciting, uh, you guys are working on?
1: Yeah, we've got a number of, uh, you know, restored series vehicles that we're working on. Um, I'm doing, uh, 1951 series one, estate vehicle that's uh that's kind of an interesting car um so 80 inch wheelbase and uh sort of a traditional coach built body and then i'm also doing a a series of you know i would say mid 60s series twos and two a's uh short and long wheelbase cars Uh, most are a restored Relatively stock, a few with some more modern amenities, power steering, disc brakes, these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, also a few exciting products that we're working on. Uh, sta- a full range of stainless steel fuel tanks that we've been we've been doing. We've got the series ones pretty well covered, and the series twos and two A's. Uh, next one is the one hundred and nine station wagon. So yeah, a couple things like that. I'm pretty excited about. Ha-
0: how about you? What's going on in your shop? Oh, what is going on in my shop? Uh, I've had the Series 3 apart for a couple of uh, weeks, kind of going through a, you know, I don't know, bicentennial maintenance uh, program, uh, draining all of the uh, fluids that can be drained and uh, refilling and topping up and regreasing and, you know, all that sort of business as it, uh, it gets driven. Uh, you know, it's it's my every other day lee driver if I'm not driving the defender uh, I'm driving the series three uh, I have uh, my 80 inch 88 uh, inch wheelbase uh, North American uh, spec uh, series 3 which is which is a great car um, still have a little a few little things uh, here and there a carburetor uh, a previous owner put in a, a very um, Uh, let's say lackluster uh copy of the zenith carburetor and uh, that is going to have to at some point uh, get dealt with because it's a it's a constant uh constantly adjusting piece and just when you think you have it uh i don't know something goes sideways again
1: those uh reproduction zeniths are are i would say too accurate they come pre-warped and uh, I think that might be the source of uh, your aggravation.
0: Yeah, it's great in the morning when it's cold, but on my drive home, it's less good. So uh, it is definitely a heat-related uh, uh, thing. But uh, but yeah, so going through that, uh, you know, today I pulled the uh, that idle servo out of the back plenum of my Defender um, as I've been having, you know, that thing where you'll start it and it'll rev really high and stay there for too long. And I've found in the past that uh, cleaning that on a Range Rover I I had cleaning that uh, that idle uh, position servo, that mass airflow idle idle thing, whatever it's called, the thing that has the four pin. Uh, plug at the back of the plenum, and holy moly, was that thing dirty? I mean, there was mung on that thing, the likes of which I have uh, have never seen. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's the it's the intake right after right after the air filter. It's in the plenum that should be relatively clean, but holy moly, was that thing dirty? So um, I haven't had a chance to really spend a lot of time driving it this afternoon, so I'm not sure if that's fixed the problem. But man, uh, you know, it just uh, a a very interesting uh, culture of a uh, deep uh, black sticky mung uh, all over that thing it's uh, all those hummingbirds that you drive through yes yeah, seriously. are you funny you say that i actually there was i was going i was going under about to lift a car up the other day and there was a hummingbird that i had uh, that had oh, died because no. i leave oh, the no. door if i leave the door open to the workshop birds will fly in here and then I don't realize they're in here because, you know, it's a 30-foot tall ceiling. So I don't know they're in here. The door <laughs> gets closed. They starve to death. They die. And then I'm always terrified. It hasn't happened yet, but it will, that my daughter, who is, you know, sensitive about, you know, dead, six years old, is going to come in and see a dead hummingbird. It's going to scar her for life. So it, it's always a race to, like, find and, and clean these things uh, out. It doesn't happen that frequently. Um, but, uh, yeah. you got to cover those barrels of nectar. Yeah, it's what it is. It's true. It's true. It's just the open barrels of you know my my, uh, my dry uh, fermented uh, honey business uh, has to exist <laughs> somewhere, and uh, you know it's uh, Land Rovers and, and fermented honey uh, with just the just the touch of bearing grease. After flavor, you know, but good. It's good. It's popular. People like it. So, you know, jokingly, uh, my uh, my building mate and I are actually talking about opening a little coffee shop in the. We have some extra office space downstairs, and you know, office space these days isn't exactly at a premium. Um, and so we're thinking, oh, well, maybe we'll open a little uh, a little coffee shop, thinking maybe we'll do a, a repair themed, uh, you know, repair like car repair shop themed uh, coffee experience uh, down there. So we'll we'll have to see. I certainly have enough uh, old broken. Lamp land rover parts to make another old broken land rover so maybe we could do a mcdonald's play place style uh you know thing made out of out of land rover parts you can uh, you can add barista to your resume that will be uh that'll be fabulous why not why not i was talking to someone the other day i was in my my wife's quilting uh studio she's a she's a she's a quilter quite accomplished, amazing uh, artisanal quilter. And I have seen that and it is amazing. It is amazing. It's a serious I'm impressed. serious I'm impressed. operation up there. Yeah. She's not it fucking is. around. Um, and uh, anyways, I was zooming with someone because I was at home and I was in that room and zooming with somebody and they said, oh my God, I've never seen you know never seen anything like that. What an amazing room. And they said, Do you do any sewing? I said, no, no, I don't. I don't sew. I, I can suture, um, you know, but I don't I don't I don't sew. And they said, well, that's a weird thing to say. And I'm like, well, I don't, that's just the closest I, you know, you, I don't know. You're around machinery enough, you learn to suture. You guys should do a collaboration. You just do skin quilts. Oh, skin quilt. It's where quilting wasn't going. <laughs> I, it's a great idea. I think it's a great idea. And on that note, uh, Ike, uh, Skin Quilts uh, Monthly. Uh, wait for our next podcast, uh, the, uh, the Lonely Skin Quilter. And, uh, but I think we'll wrap it up there for uh, this week um, and come back next week. And, and who knows? will check in on the Skin Quilt.
1: I like it. We, got, we both got a whole bunch of homework to do, it sounds like. Uh, check me out on Instagram, pangolin4x4, or online at pangolin4x4.com. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Underpowered Hour.
0: The Underpowered Hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss consider supporting the show through our Patreon. And when you do, you'll be given access to exclusive content and Underpowered Hour merch. Want even more Underpowered Hour? Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.